Hey everyone, Paul here. You're listening to part four in our series on the problem of evil. If you haven't listened to the previous episodes yet on this subject, you might want to go back and give those a listen before diving in today, but maybe you're especially brave or maybe you uh, already have some sort of base knowledge of church history, Old Testament and New Testament theology, then maybe you want to just jump right in, but that's up to you. As we discussed going as far back as our Christ and Culture series, the perennial problem for Christianity has always been, how do we relate the message of Jesus, this meta-narrative of the scriptures, how do we relate it to our surrounding culture? And what elements of our culture and our cultural stories actually contain the truth? What elements of our culture and these cultural narratives has Christ actually been at work revealing himself in? This has been the challenge for Christians from the very get-go, because Christians from the very get-go were always a minority presence on the margins of their culture and their society. What we saw, going back to the last episode, in the first and second century was that Christianity was under several existential threats. Of course, you know, everyone knows, I think most people know, about the threat of Roman persecution and the Roman government through people like Nero and Trajan trying to to stomp out the early development of Christianity. But that wasn't the only threat. We talked about last episode that there were theological and philosophical threats in the form of Gnostic and Marcionite heresies. These heresies were incredibly attractive to people living in the Middle East and the Mediterranean world of that first and second century. You know, Marcionism didn't begin till the second century, but Gnosticism was well, well on its way in the first century. The appeal of these heresies, as they would end up being called, the appeal of these alternative forms of Christianity were that they offered people an easier answer for the problem of evil. And as the first and second century church fathers attempted to respond to these challenges, they had to delineate their own theodicy. And as we talked about in the last episode, the theodicy of the early first and second century church fathers is, seems to be very in keeping with the New Testament perspective. As we talked about at the conclusion of the last episode, the Gnostic and Marcionite heresies were, were in extremely dualistic, right? Going so far as to say that there is a, a, an evil demiurge or a lesser God that's responsible for the creation of the material world. And as we remember, Marcion even suggested that we just abandon the Old Testament in that God that for Marcion sounded an awful lot like Richard Dawkins' picture of the Old Testament God. This was a different God than the God of Jesus in the New Testament. So the early church fathers rejected that. They rejected the extreme dualisms of the Gnostic and Marcionite heresies, but they still held fast to a more moderate dualism, this sort of cosmic dualism that we, we do see in the New Testament. 
where Satan is very much a moral agent. They considered him to be a fallen angel with varying explanations. Some like Justin Martyr went with the intertestamental literature of Enoch and Jubilees to sort of make that the backstory of how he fell. But Satan is still using the language of the New Testament authors, the prince of this world, and they see him as the one who deceives and brings afflictions and tempts people towards evil. And he, they even see him as the one who is motivating the persecution of the church. And yet, simultaneously, his power is never a rival to God. Satan was not responsible for the creation of the material world. He is not a lesser deity. He is just a powerful, angelic, moral agent. And it's really clear from these first and second century church fathers that the material world isn't evil. Creation in and of itself is not evil. It may be experiencing a fallen state, but God has a redemptive goal. And that goal, unlike what the Gnostics were teaching, wasn't to escape it. The goal of first and second century Christianity is to not escape the matrix. It is to redeem the matrix. God was going to redeem creation, bring judgment on evil, resurrect the righteous, to inherit the world they partnered with God in redeeming. This was the Christian message. And yet as we head into the third century, Christians are still wrestling with how do we relay this message to the culture that we find ourselves within. One response was the response of a third century church father known as Tertullian. Tertullian converted out of Stoicism. Stoicism was one of the great Greek philosophies in the Greco-Roman world at the time. Very much Stoicism, maybe one of the best modern examples you could think of is in many ways the, the Jedi of the original Star Wars trilogy and, and even the prequels embody a sort of stoicism to them, a denial of passions, a denial of entanglements with the world. Tertullian converted out of that sort of Jedi-like way of thinking at the age of 40. Tertullian lived in Carthage, which is in North Africa. Maybe you remember Carthage, some of you history nerds from the, the Punic Wars, right? the great general Hannibal who marched the elephants across the Alps to try to invade Rome, which was kind of a foolish move. That's where Tertullian is from. And Tertullian had a, a very strong sense of ethical dualism. He, he embodied, if we were to go back to our Christ and Culture series, Tertullian embodies a very Christ-against-culture approach compared to prior church fathers like Justin and Irenaeus. For Tertullian, good and evil is very much a cosmic conflict between Satan and God. Part of Tertullian's embodiment of this sort of cosmic conflict mentality, this warfare view, is to see the world itself as very divided into very dualistic teams 
those who are within the kingdom of darkness and those who are within the kingdom of light. Tertullian was very much a black and white sort of person. He, he didn't, there wasn't a lot of gray in Tertullian's theology. For Tertullian, it was Satan who infected humanity by the, quote, implanted germ of sin. Tertullian's writings are actually the first evidence we have of someone in church history to equate Satan with the Isaiah 14, 12 reference to the fall of the day star, son of dawn. In Latin, in the Latin Vulgate, it was Lucifer, which originally meant light bringer. And if you look at more modern translations of the um, the Old Testament, right? They, they've they've all but removed. I think maybe the King James might still have it. Have all but removed the word Lucifer from that section in Isaiah 14, because while Tertullian incorrectly assumed that this, or maybe we shouldn't say incorrectly assumed, he he speculated that Isaiah 14 was actually in reference to a sort of pre-fallen Satan. It's really clear as we we look at that chapter and its historical context that Isaiah is not referring to any sort of spiritual principality and power. Some people might debate that, but this that's the reason why more modern translations have removed Lucifer and it will say morning star or light bringer. Because modern translators have realized Tertullian's error here. And I, again, I just encourage you, if you want to just read, you know, read Isaiah 13, 14, and 15, you know, just read several chapters and in context there, and you'll see like, yeah, Isaiah is not laying out for us some sort of backstory on the fall of Satan. Tertullian is one of the first people, and it seems to be one of the first church fathers that we have evidence for to make that connection between that Isaiah 14 passage. And many people, as they grow up in the church, hear a similar story. They hear a, a backstory on the fall of Satan. And I remember hearing growing up that he was Lucifer, and he was the most beautiful of all the angels. But And even I heard things like he was kind of like the choir director or worship leader of heaven, which I don't know where that comes from, you know, other than um, people that also were trying to embody a very Christ-against-culture approach to things like, uh, quote, secular music. But, you know, most of this sort of backstory that many Christians hear about Satan doesn't actually come from the Bible. It, Tertullian first sort of threw out this suggestion from Isaiah 14, and then for most people, it was actually, you know, John Milton's Paradise Lost. That is a book of fiction, right? For, for Milton, this is not, Milton is not saying he's getting some sort of revelation of this, People look to that story. That story was kind of adopted in many Christian circles as like, well, this this seems like the most plausible backstory. So we're just going to use this one to kind of tell how there was this beautiful angel named Lucifer and he fell because he was really, really vain and arrogant. Maybe we could trace all that back to Tertullian. But again, most scholars today think that this is a misunderstanding. Based on this misunderstanding, Tertullian goes on to lay out a sort of backstory for Satan that we, again, don't really have biblical record for. 
And it's actually different than the sort of backstory people like Justin Martyr gave for the fall of angels. At least we have indication right now of where Justin Martyr likely got that idea from. Justin Martyr's ideas we could connect to the intertestamental books like Enoch and Jubilees for his understanding of Satan and demonology, but we currently don't have an easy direct connection between where Tertullian first got this idea. I don't know, maybe one day we'll discover it, just like you know, we didn't have access to the Dead Sea Scrolls up until uh, you know, about a century ago. So who knows? Maybe we'll we'll see some sort of, you know, missing books that go, oh, we can kind of see where Tertullian got that idea from. I do think though, we can say that Tertullian's idea that Satan was somehow Lucifer before the fall, and that a this Isaiah 14 passage points to the fall of Lucifer and his turning into Satan. I think we can say with pretty strong certainty that that's not necessarily part of the intentions of the biblical author for that. For Tertullian, the angel that became the devil was originally, quote, the wisest of creatures. This angel was by creation good and by choice corrupt. And that's really key. Um, That's a really key point that is consistent with the previous church fathers of the first and second century. And it's going to be a consistent theme that we see after Tertullian as well. The key feature here of the devil's fall, of Satan's fall, was that he even himself was created good, but by his own choice became corrupted and fallen. That is still very much in keeping with what we have in the biblical literature about all creation, that all of creation was created good. It's in keeping with the previous church fathers. Even if we were to compare Justin Martyr's backstory for the fall of angel, the fallen angels and Satan, they are created in a, a good state with the capacity for free will and the capacity to be moral agents. And they use that will and by their own choice corrupt themselves. That is very different than the Gnostic and Marcionite view of the time. Because in a sense, the Gnostic and Marcionite view, there is a sense in which evil is, is faded. There's a sort of faded dimension to evil because there is this fallen demigod, there is this lesser god, perhaps even this evil god who has created the material world. And so our world from the very get-go our experience of reality, our bodies and the physical world in this Gnostic and Marcionite heresies, those are all evil from the get-go. And while I would be in agreement with most scholars and in disagreement with Tertullian that Isaiah 14 doesn't give us some backstory on Satan, I am still in agreement with Tertullian on this idea that all of creation was created good, even the angels who would eventually fall. 
For Tertullian, Satan was the first to sin, the, quote, the very author of sin. He was once irreproachable at the time of his creation, formed for good by God, and adorned with every angelic glory and associated with God, good with the good, capital G, but afterwards of his own accord removed to evil, created with the faculty of free will, end quote. In Tertullian's backstory, Satan becomes angry at God for having created humans. And he is, in Tertullian's backstory, he's, he's jealous of humanity because God has given humanity such a high position as caretakers of the earth. And so it's pride and jealousy that consumes Satan, and that's what drives him in Tertullian's backstory here to go into Eden and corrupt humanity. In doing so, he thereby brings evil into this material creation. Satan then and his demons attempt to destroy humanity through things like causing disease and they, they incite people to lust and to be mean to others. And for Tertullian, this is where Tertullian's Christ against culture attitude is really, really evident. It's even the demons and Satan who are behind things like the theater and the circus and the gladiatorial games of the Roman Empire. Tertullian is really, really clear. If you even attend these events, you're in danger. And to go to the circus, to go to the theater, these sorts of public spectacles in the Roman Empire, to do so is a sin. And Tertullian even cites, uh, you know, who knows if the story is true or not, but it might seem like a little bit like a straw man, but who knows. Tertullian says that there was a time, he, he tells the story of a, a woman who went to the theater and then came home possessed. And then uh, another woman who had a, a dream of an actor in a play and then five days later kicked the bucket and died, right? In general, I should say as a side note, Tertullian does not have a very high view of women. Um... <laughs> you know, especially not even by today's standards, you know, comparatively even for his day, you know, Tertullian lays a lot of blame for the evil in the world on the feet of women. Um, so you ladies out there that pick up Tertullian, you can, you can kind of expect to be frustrated by him. I, I'm not going to try to defend him in any way, shape or form. He does, you know, even by ancient standards, he does seem like to be uh, perhaps maybe a little bit bigoted towards women, who knows, you know. So humans are, they can be corrupted by demons by even going to the theater, going to the circus, going to the sorts of Roman gladiatorial games. Humans can even be, you know, this is kind of getting into some of the more wacky stuff of Tertullian, but, you know, uh, even after death, an evil spirit might try to, possess a relative to convince us that uh, th there is no such thing as the resurrection, that there's no such punish, there's not, no punishment in hell. And the, these demons 
are are really frightening and, and powerful. So even with that, though, Tertullian does you know try to end his warning on a happier, hopeful note. And he does encourage Christians that if they resist things that are from the devil, like going to the theater, going to the circus, and uh, they resist those things, that through faith and the grace of God, they can defeat the demonic forces in the world. Again, for Tertullian, there is very little gray. He has a very different perspective on Greco-Roman culture from others that have gone before him, especially someone like like Justin Martyr, who by and large part, Justin Martyr even believed that God had in a certain sense given the Greeks philosophy, just like he gave the Jewish people the law. You know, and he had a very much Christ, you might say, Christ above culture approach. So if you don't know what those terms mean, I'd encourage you Maybe you get done with this podcast. I'm giving you a lot of stuff to go back and listen to. Go back and listen to the Christ and Culture series. Tertullian is very much Christ against culture. And we see that manifestation even in his theodicy, all right? So not only is this just a Christ against culture attitude, but Christians should be very concerned about the environment and the culture that they find themselves in in that Greco-Roman world because he links it to being the inspiration of demons. And, you know, it's, he makes some fascinating points if you read Tertullian. All right, so now this point in Tertullian's contribution to church history is really important. Tertullian attempts to harmonize the sort of monistic theodicy of the Old Testament with the cosmic dualism of the New Testament. And this is a really important contribution because, again, very different from the Marcionism of the second century, which saw the Old Testament God as being the evil fallen demiurge and the New Testament being, and not even all of it, but only the select portions that Marcion thought were inspired to be the inspired picture of God. Tertullian comes along as someone that's trying to harmonize the Old Testament and New Testament. And guys, just like we talked about last episode, we need to acknowledge there's some difficult pictures here. We've talked about from the very get-go, the near 600 references to Satan and demons and the scant few references to someone called Satan, ha-satan in Hebrew, at all in the Old Testament, and there are zero reference to demons, fallen angels, none of that stuff. So we have to acknowledge that that tension's there. Tertullian tries to sort of work through that tension by trying to harmonize the, the cosmic dualism of the New Testament with the sort of monistic theodicy of the Old Testament. And he, he tries to do this through differentiating our experiences of suffering. Not all experiences of suffering are inherently evil, and not all of our what we think of as experiences of evil are actually evil. Tertullian sees there being two kinds of evil. There are the evils of sin, of using the will, of misusing the will, we should say, to move away from the good and the suffering experienced as evil, but what is actually 
just punishment from God. And the way that Tertullian attempts to harmonize this sort of monistic theodicy with the cosmic dualism of the New Testament is he goes to that that troubling passage in Isaiah 45, verse 7. It's one that I think we talked about at the very first episode in this particular series, the one in which uh, God speaking through Isaiah says, I form the light and create darkness. I make peace and create evil. I, the Lord, do all these things. So here's, here's what Tertullian does with that text and his attempt to harmonize the Old Testament, New Testament together. Tertullian suggests that the devil has been allowed a temporary jurisdiction of tempting people to sin. And so, in that way, there is evil and suffering because people do not resist Satan. So, the devil who's been allowed this temporary jurisdiction for some reason, and that jurisdiction includes his ability granted by God for some reason to allow there to be the temptation of people to sin. There is the evil that results and the suffering that results from people not resisting Satan and giving in to sin, which creates dysfunction. Yet, there is also an experience of evil and suffering that may not actually be evil. It is well within God's jurisdiction for Tertullian, as God created all things, to bring judgment on sin through punishing sinners so that they or others may learn not to sin. This sort of suffering is not really evil because when God punishes, it is just and good. And although God allows Satan and the demons to act in the present for some reason, they have actually already been defeated in the death and resurrection of Christ. In baptism, we receive the power to resist their efforts. And that summary comes from the Charlene P.E. Burns book we've referred to several times in this podcast. So, for Tertullian, you can have an experience of suffering that actually is evil, and it's the result, especially in the case of what, again, we call moral evils. When people do not resist Satan, it creates evil and suffering in the world. When someone doesn't resist the temptation to steal or murder or to lie, it creates evil and suffering sometimes for themselves, but it definitely creates it for other people who are the victims of their lack of ability to resist Satan. So there is evil and suffering in that sense. The other sense in which people might suffer is God bringing a punishment that is a temporary experience of suffering. Tertullian goes, hey, this is, this is not evil, though we might experience it as evil. This is not evil, but it's in fact a just judgment so that people would not be tempted to sin. It's, it's an attempt to dissuade people from the temptation of sin. It might be also a, a correction for someone who has sinned so that they would not do it again. The later church historian and theologian Jerome suggested that Tertullian eventually became involved with a heretical cult. 
Now, Jerome's reliability on Tertullian and Origen is just a couple examples more recently have been called into question, but we can't rule it out. Tertullian's own proclivities to see the world as either very clearly black or very clearly white, and his very anti-culture attitudes could have led him into a heretical group that practiced total celibacy, rejected things like even procreating in the world. But then again, it could be that that charge against Tertullian from Jerome much later in history might have been completely erroneous. We don't know. People are suspicious, just as a side note, you know, Jerome was given to strong polemic diatribes against anybody he really disagreed with and kind of was, as scholars now have been able to sort of pick up on um, maybe Jerome embellishing stories or perhaps even creating stories, possibly even out of thin air to strengthen his case. So we can't say this for certain about Tertullian, although we also can't rule it out given Tertullian's Christ against culture attitudes. Now, these next few centuries in church history and really in Greco-Roman philosophy are going to be crucial for the rest of church history. But before we do that, before we start exploring this next era in the history of the church, I want to just take a moment to reflect and, and summarize perhaps what the leading Christian voices in those first three centuries seem to believe about evil and suffering. First, they seem to agree that God is good and that he created the world good, but that he created a world with moral agents who he granted the capability to move away from the good by their own will and volition. Secondly, sin would be to move away from God, to move away from the good. Satan and other fallen angels misused their will first and then tempted humanity to do the same. Who or what tempted Satan first is not answered. But it's clear from Tertullian, going all the way back to Clement of Rome, Satan is the primary moral agent responsible in creation for sin and deception and evil. In a sense, you could say that in the first few centuries of church history, people believed that Satan had almost kidnapped humanity. Yes, humanity is responsible for not heeding God's instruction. God gave clear instruction. But the primary object of God's wrath and judgment is the kidnapper, not the kids. In Christ, God ransomed humanity from the clutches of Satan. In baptism and through Christian practices like prayer, Christians can resist the devil, who is an ultimately defeated foe, but whose final judgment has not yet come. Spiritual forces are still very real and, and very active until that day, and, and humanity is caught up in a cosmic struggle. In that struggle, though, the earliest Christians affirm the inherent goodness of creation the harmony of the Old and the New Testament, the supremacy of Christ over all demonic forces, the hope that Christians will ultimately participate in Christ's victory, and yet the simultaneous affirmation that many in this life 
will share in Christ's sufferings. This sharing in Christ's sufferings should not be considered an act of judgment, though God is also active in bringing consequences to sinful behavior in order to curb human desires to move away from the good. Over the third through the fifth century, three brilliant and controversial theologians laid out responses to the problem of evil, which would become the standard answers theologians would refer to for many centuries after. These three men were Origen, Gregory of Nyssa, and Augustine. Before we even get to them, we gotta understand one of the most important philosophers of this era, who, who plays a major role in influencing Christian theology. Plotinus lived from 204 to 270 AD. He was born in Egypt, and, and he's considered to be the founder of what scholars call today Neoplatonism. Plotinus taught that there was a transcendent one, which was beyond all categories and classifications of being or even non-being. The one is not a personal God like that which Jewish and Christians believed in at the time, or, or later Muslims. In fact, the one is not even truly self-aware for Plotinus. The one is immutable, unchangeable, passable, terms that would later be applied to the Christian triune God. The one is the cause of being itself, and all creation is an emanation of from this fundamental pure light. The nous, N-O-U-S, or the logos, is the first emanation from the one. It is the reason, the order, and the intelligibility of reality. Now, it's not first in the sense of a sequence in time, because time itself is a later emanation out of the one. The one is not bound by time, but exists out of time. This is, again, another idea that is later borrowed in Christian theology. But the nous, or the logos, is the, the first, as in the first fundamental to the structure of the rest of reality. The next emanation in this hierarchy of reality is the world soul. The world soul emanates from the logos. So you have the one, the noose or the logos, which emanates from the one, and the world soul, which emanates from the logos. With each new level of emanation, you get further away from the one or the good. In Plotinus's hierarchy of reality, matter was the furthest thing away from the one. Whereas the one was pure simplicity, matter, as the emanation furthest away from the one, was filled with chaotic potentiality. You have to keep in mind for Plotinus, this, the one was pure simplicity, pure actuality, 
right? There's no potentiality in the one to, for the one to be changed into something else, to be affected. Again, the one is immutable, unchangeable, unpassable. Nothing can affect the one. The one is the fundamental, ultimate reality. Matter is not. Matter is full of potentiality, and matter, as it's being furthest away from the one, is filled with chaotic potentiality. The potentiality of matter could get transformed into a thing by being informed. So matter, again, you have to think, kind of have to detach for a moment your conceptions as a modern person of, of matter with, you know, material sciences. Now, material sciences would be a later development of, on a concept similar to this, but matter is not that. Matter is simply the, the sort of layer of reality that is furthest away from the one and also simultaneously filled with the most chaotic potentiality. How does something in this chaos become a thing? It gets formed or informed. Put the right information into certain inorganic ingredients and voila, you'll get an organic living thing. Put even more of the right information into the potentiality of organic ingredients, and voila, you get a rational creature. The goal for the human mind, then, is to be properly formed with the right information, to have its will turned towards the one in contemplation. Plotinus was actually very much a mystic, and a later disciple of his shared that over the course of his life, he had several, he would describe as mystical experiences where he felt a union with the one. All right, this is important because Plotinus then lays out a sort of theodicy, a, a, a metaphysical explanation for what evil is. Evil then is not actually a thing. Evil then is the disorganization and the chaos that emerges as a result of heading away from the good and heading into non-being. You could say that in a sense, evil is not using your potential the right way, which is kind of funny because when you think about it, even in maybe in our own culture today, you know, one of the worst things somebody can say about another person, I don't know if this is the worst, <laughs> but it hurts. It's up there, right? Is they, they might say, you know, in disapproval or disappointment, yeah, they just didn't live up to their potential or they had so much potential and they squandered it on this or man, they had such a bright future ahead of them. Why did they go do this terrible thing? And you hear this all the time, uh, it, you know, when they interview n the neighbors of the local serial killer. <laughs> Hopefully there's not too many local serial killers in your neighborhood. But that always seems to be the case. They, they interview the person that, that does the horrific thing. And so many times you hear, boy, I don't, I just can't see how they did this. They seemed like such a nice person. And, you know, in, in another horrific school shooting, you might hear a story of, oh, they had so much potential ahead of them. Evil for Plotinus is not using your potential the right way. You've been given potentiality, 
And that potentiality is to be directed towards the good. To not direct it towards the good, to not direct it towards the one, is to head into non-being. Plotinus doesn't see evil as a thing. Evil is not a thing. (laughs) Which seems like a weird thing to say. But for Plotinus, evil is the heading into nothing. Evil is not a thing. To continue on a trajectory away from the good is to head towards non-being and nothing. should also be noted that Plotinus actually hated Gnosticism too, and he thought it perverted the true picture of reality. Now, I take the time to lay out just a bit of Plotinus's philosophy and his own theodicy because It's really crucial to understand Neoplatonism as we explore these next three men who are really the pillars of Christian theology and theodicy over the next several centuries that follow. And in particular, I think it's crucial that we understand the Neoplatonism of Plotinus before we get into origin. Origin has such a bad and confusing rap. And sometimes people that dive right into church history and they start reading through the church fathers and they get to origin and they go, what is this guy talking about? You know, it's, this is so wild and so crazy. I think it helps to understand that origin of Alexandria lived within a Neoplatonic world. And so he's attempting to do, in a sense, a a theology of culture that is what I might consider a Christ-above-culture approach. Again, you go back to the Christ and Culture series to, to find out more about those terms if you're not familiar with them. So let's take some time now to explore one of the most influential and most controversial theologians of the church. Origin of Alexandria lived from 185 to 254 AD, and he's really considered to be the truly first great Christian theologian. He's the first systematic theologian and the, really the first teacher of biblical hermeneutics and even what you might consider textual criticism. Origen set the standard for how Christians would read their Bible all the way until the Reformation. He's a massive pillar of Christian theology. And yet, as I mentioned before, he's also one of the most controversial in church history. And while I can't fully unpack the arguments for the pro-origin and anti-origin camps out there, that's not the purpose of this podcast, the important point is that there is some serious academic debate about whether some of Origen's more controversial perspectives were ever taught by Origen at all, or that they were later editions added by people who were really reacting against later followers called Originists. It's massively confusing. I'm not going to get into the weeds of all of that stuff. What I'm going to try to do is lay out for you what has been traditionally considered the theology of Origen. Being from Alexandria which was a hotbed for Neoplatonist philosophy, 
Origen spoke and wrote largely within that contextual frame. So we have to kind of reframe as we read Origen. We have to frame him within his context and to see him living in this Neoplatonist world, the, the world of Plotinus's philosophy. What makes Origen so complex is, you know, we, we look back and we see this guy's frequently invited to important synods to speak out against heresies, and yet simultaneously, even in his own lifetime, he's getting accused of being heretical. And of course, in the centuries that follow, there's even more controversy about Origen. Is he, is he a saint? Is he actually a heretic? We know that even during his lifetime, though, people were forging transcripts of speeches he gave including one that made it all the way to the Bishop of Rome, where the forger made the claim that Origen was teaching definitively that one day even Satan would be saved by the mercy and forgiveness of God. And as we're going to talk about a little bit later, there certainly is evidence that Origen had questions of this nature and and speculated about the extent of God's redemptive work, but Origen was able to prove that that was a forgery within his own lifetime. Now, if it was even a a merely speculative question and not a dogmatic teaching, who can blame him for asking? And this is one of the things that people, they maybe first hear about origin. This is one of the first things they hear regards to him. They don't know that he's really kind of the father of biblical hermeneutics. And I'm not, I'm not like picking a team pro or against origin. I'm just laying out, trying to lay out a balanced perspective on him with the best that I can. Because one of the first things people hear about Origen is they go, oh, Origen, he was a universalist, and he was the guy that thought that God was going to forgive Satan one day. But let's say he just threw that out as a speculative question. I mean, hasn't that question ever entered your mind? I mean, long before I had any clue of who Origen was, I I sit in Sunday school as a kid, and you hear stories and the lessons about the radical forgiveness of God towards sinners, the question, even at that time, that would wander into my little elementary school brain was things like, all right, well, would God's forgiveness extend even towards people like Judas? What about Satan? Could God forgive them if they repent? You know, these are these are the questions that maybe we even asked at that time, and somebody told us, yeah, you might just want to shelve that question. <laughs> yeah. So I, I don't blame Origen for speculating. In fact, I think it's a really healthy thing. The questions that we have, we need to let out. Let's get into Origen's theodicy now. For Origen, and this is where the sort of like cosmology and the, the metaphysics and ontology of Origen can, can really creep people out. Again, when you're maybe just like a, Bible student or a first-year church historian student, and you start reading Origen, but maybe you haven't familiarized yourself with Neoplatonism and and, uh, and Plotinus. This stuff seems so strange, all right? But again, let's let's try to set this in the context that Origen is living in. So let's unpack some of Origen's theodicy here. For Origen, there were two acts of creation— The first was the creation of the spiritual domain. What, again, Charlene P.E. Burns, who we've referred to a few times, calls 
a realm of pure intellects given free will. What is this pure intellect stuff? Well, again, that's language that comes directly from Plotinus. These pure intellects were the angelic beings created with a freedom of will. And, and Origen makes it really clear, too, that the angels are genderless, just in case you were wondering, you know, if you were wondering what pronoun you should use to refer to the angels, uh, Origen makes it clear they're genderless. So whether you might want to call them a he or a she, maybe you should ask an angel first before you assume their pronouns. Um, they're genderless. They're genderless beings. The angelic beings differ from God in that they're able to go through the change of potentiality into actuality. Whereas God, as we've talked about with Plotinus and his, his idea of the one, God is pure simplicity, pure actuality. There's, there's no potential in God to change. Now, some of these rational angelic beings use their capacity for potentiality to turn away from God. Now, that part's not all that controversial. Christian thinkers and theologians, as we've seen in the first few centuries leading up to Origen, have all essentially unanimously, unanimously said that evil is the misuse of the will. It's the misuse, if we were to put it in sort of Neoplatonist terms, which is kind of what Origen's doing, it's the misuse of our potentiality. Why these angelic rational minds misuse their potentiality is a mystery. And Origen gives two possible causes, but no real explanation. So, so why did these rational minds, why did these pure intellects, these angels misuse their potentiality? Why did they ever move away from the good? Why did they ever misuse their will to move away from God? Origen gives two possible causes, but not so much of an explanation as to the why here. Here's the first possible cause. The, the first possibility is that the devil as a singular moral agent fell first and then tempted the others, including possibly, Origen even throws out that maybe even the devil had tempted the pre-incarnate son of God, the pre-existent son of God to rebel, but yet he didn't, even in that pre-existent, pre-incarnate, pre-incarnated state. Satan was unsuccessful in tempting the son, but successful in tempting many angels who did succumb to the devil's temptations. And then he gives a second possible cause for why these angelic rational minds moved away from the good. And this one is <laughs> in many ways more confusing than the first, first uh, possible explanation. The second possible possibility for origin as to why the pure intellects, the angelic spiritual beings moved away from the good is that he thought, well, maybe they just got bored or lazy. <laughs> they they were lazy and bored and then they turned away out of curiosity and you're like okay well origin I'll, I'll think about that one for a little bit all right so that was like the first act of creation but for origin as i mentioned before there's a second act of creation that second act of creation is the material world as opposed to gnosticism 
which thought that a lesser or wicked demiurge or God created the world, hence again why it's filled with evil and suffering. Origen believed that God created the world as a way of stopping the first fall from heading into total annihilation and the cessation of existence. This is where stuff kind of gets weird for most Christians as they read Origen. This means that human souls then for Origen are pre-existent. Human souls, like Plotinus's Neoplatonism, human souls are a pre-existent thing that receives a material form or expression. So again, Totally would have been normal for people reading it in Origen's time. You know, this is very, very normal in his day, but we have to acknowledge this is a new perspective compared to our previous church fathers we've explored. And, and I would argue that it's one that isn't biblically grounded. I don't think the New Testament or the um, Old Testament teaches the immortal soul. I certainly don't believe that um, I would say this, that, you know, there's certainly reasonable people that can point to. Here we, we see evidence in, in the New Testament of there being a soul, and that soul is immortal in the future, but it wasn't ever pre-existent. Um, it wasn't ever, uh, never enjoyed a pre-existent state. But again, understand what Origen is trying to do, I, and I kind of get it. He's trying to make a cosmological explanation for the problem of evil, that makes sense within the larger Neoplatonism of his day, while trying to simultaneously find a way to deny Gnosticism. The Gnostics believed the material world was evil. Neoplatonists believed that this matter was the closest thing to non-being, right? And that in, in many ways, it's just, it's fundamentally broken. And so the goal for both is to transcend matter, right? For, you could say, even for Plotinus, matter is sort of the illusion. There's this famous story that um, Plotinus's disciple tells. One day, someone had asked Plotinus, well, can we, we'd like to make a portrait of you. We'd like to paint a portrait of you. And Plotinus goes, well, no, I don't, I don't want you to, I don't want you to make uh, uh, an image of the thing about me that isn't real, right? I don't need another image for the body, which is the image of my soul, you know? So for, for Plotinus, the, the body actually, you know, people mistakenly think oftentimes that Platonism is always the soul inhabiting the body. But you could probably say that for Neoplatonism, it was more like the body inhabited the soul, so again, this is sort of the platonic idealism for you philosophy nerds, that matter takes the form of the, the immaterial ideal. And uh, so Origen is, is tracking on, on that, same, that same direction, right? Origen is borrowing these ideas, and this is where it, it gets to be, you know, kind of weird for us as Christians, Human souls are pre-existent. Origen is trying again to go and, 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 and to affirm, no, creation in the material world is good. But, but how do I affirm that? All right. So he comes, he, he continues with the, the Platonist thought, right? That everything 
in the material world is part of this realm of intellect, the ideal, right? And the matter attempts to take the shape of the ideal, and everything is actually trying to, 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 to try to find union with the one. So human souls then were actually in a pre-existent state, and pre-existent, and then you could think of the material world and physical bodies as a sort of, for, for origin, they are like a safety net that kept the souls, that kept the immaterial, which is still very real, kept the first act of creation from descending totally into non-existence. I want to read a couple excerpts from, um, from Plotinus to help you understand where how origins thought on the, the, the descent of the souls and the pre-existence of the souls kind of makes sense in his day, even though I think we can still safely say today, or at least of my perspective, which I try not to throw too many of my own perspectives in this particular series, but I will say very clearly my own perspective, I do not believe in the pre-existence of the soul. I don't think that's a biblical concept. So here's from Plotinus, a couple of important quotes. The soul is a divine being and dwells in more heavenly places, but has entered body. The soul is a minor god, a derivative aspect of the divine, but compelled by its powers and due to its tendency to bring order to whatever is beneath it, it penetrates to the, this lower sphere, the material world, in a voluntary plunge. If it turns back quickly, all is well. It will not be injured by acquiring the knowledge of evil and coming to understand sin. But the soul may dive too deep into matter and linger too long and get stuck. Another quote here from Plotinus. Just as Narcissus fell in love with his own image in the mirroring water, the mirror of Dionysus, tried to kiss his own reflection and fell into the water and drowned, so the soul of humans, seeing their image in the mirror of matter, have entered into the material world in a leap downward from the supreme. Yet even they are not cut off from their origin, from the divine mind. It's not that they have come bringing the intelligence down their fall. It's that Though they have descended even to earth, yet their higher parts hold forever above the heavens. What yet then, uh, end quote there from Plotinus, what then is the material world for origin? Origin differs from Plotinus in this regard. Origin uses two pictures to help people best understand what he thinks God's intentions are for the material world. First, he believes it's a school for the mind and the rational soul to learn. It's a school for moral agents to learn in. And secondly, he believes it's a hospital for our souls to be healed and rehabilitated. This makes much more of our experience of suffering, actually, the discomfort that comes with learning and rehabilitation, and it's designed to teach us what ways to lead it's designed to teach us what ways lead to God and what ways lead to destruction. So in a sense, Origen is trying to redeem our experiences of suffering in this sort of neoplatonic framework. And he goes, no, 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 this is, this is a place that is good because it's good in that it's directing us, it's teaching us, it's healing us, it's rehabilitating us. And our experiences of suffering and discomfort are part of the learning and the rehabilitation. It's like when you've broken your leg and you have to go to personal therapy, you know, 
this is not actually, they didn't have PT. Uh, physical therapy, not personal therapy. <laughs> physical therapy. And they didn't have that back in origin, per se, in his day. But when that happens, you go through perhaps a painful process of rehabilitation. The goal is to lead you towards the good, though. Now, while there is this kind of instructive suffering for origin, there's also evil suffering for origin. And evil for origin is very much the same sort of description of evil that Plotinus gives. For origin, evil is the movement away from the good. The ultimate good is God. So here we have origin reframing this Neoplatonism, saying it's, it's, it, it is the personal God. It's the God of the Old Testament and the New Testament. And, and this God is, you're right, Plotinus, this God is being itself. To move away from the good, which is God, is to move towards non-being, to move away from life. Origen is also famous for being the first to seriously speculate about the ultimate reconciliation of all souls, or what we might call Christian universalism. This is from Charlene P. E. Burns' book, At the End Times, all the rational minds will return to their original state with God. He, Origen, found support for the idea of the apocatastasis, or the return or restoration in the scriptures, particularly Paul's writings. Origen had speculated that there may be a final return of all rational minds and souls into the original harmony of their contemplation of God, which again... This is another novel thought in the Christian tradition thus far, but it certainly would not be the last time someone would speculate about Christian universalism. I'd have to acknowledge there is a sort of internal coherence to Origen's logic, as odd as his cosmology may seem to us. If, if God created the material world as a school or a hospital, and if souls are in fact inherently immortal and eternal, Will God have failed if the school does not teach all or the hospital does not heal all? What will happen to the souls of people who live as eternal souls? Origen's speculations on the possibility of all things eventually returning back to God and being ultimately redeemed, even bringing up the question of Satan himself has has enjoyed a bit of a revival in the past few decades here in the U.S. and in Europe. One of the reasons for this, in my perspective, is because people see it as a way of solving the problem of evil. Sure, things may be bad right now, but God will ultimately redeem and restore everyone and everything. And if that's the case, well, maybe those glorious ends will justify the means that it took to get there. And if God is all-powerful and all-good, wouldn't he want all people to be saved? If he's all-powerful, then he will accomplish that. At some other time, we'll have to unpack differing perspectives among Christians on final judgment, universalism, annihilation, eternal conscious torment. But this isn't that podcast. So what are the pros and cons of Origen's theology and his perspective on the problem of evil? Well, 
I think we could say that Origen's intentions are likely very pure. As a, as a boy, we know he even he wanted to be martyred with his father when his father was martyred. And there's really nothing about Origen's work that suggests that he is being disingenuous in any way. His goals appear to be, I want to defend the Christian values and I want to defend the meta-narrative against the competing meta-narrative of Gnosticism. And yet, I want to affirm that God calls us to follow his way of living in the world. As he tries to do this, he explains evil and suffering in a way that fits within a platonic framework. Evil and suffering come about as we move away from God's intentions. Even his speculation that it was boredom or laziness that caused the angelic fall is really more likely a a veiled ethical warning against boredom. On the downside, even with his probably very pure intentions and his desire to combat against the meta-narrative of Gnosticism and to to sort of Christianize Platonism. Even with his warnings to readers that they should come to more of his speculative work with, quote, caution, investigation, and discussion, end quote, his ideas on the pre-existent soul and the return of all souls, even possibly Satan's back to God, were a significant deviation from how those before him had understood the biblical narrative. While Origen tries to Christianize Platonism in an effort to prevent Christianity from being distorted in a worse form of Platonism, which is Gnosticism, there are good questions as to whether or not Christianity is in a sense becoming Platonized through Origen. In the next episode, we'll explore the two other pillars of Christian theodicy who sort of set the table for what Christians will think on this subject for centuries to follow. I'm talking about Gregory of Nyssa and Augustine, both of whom are significantly influenced by the work of Origen. Thanks for listening today, and I want to thank Deep Talk's Patreon community for their support of this podcast for making this program possible. In particular, I want to thank Paul R. and Luke H. for their contributions to this program, for going above and beyond, for jumping up to that Theology 201 level. And I want to welcome new Patreon supporter, Dave. Thanks, Dave, for your support, too, as well. I I couldn't do this podcast without you guys. I so, so appreciate it. If you want to be involved in the Deep Talks Patreon community where there will be bonus and additional content and and even if you just feel like I don't care about the content, I just want to support this podcast, then you can find out more at Deep Talks, uh, at the Deep Talks Patreon account. I'll, I'll leave a link to that in the description of this. One of the perks that's going to be coming up is also in the next week, I'm going to be re- releasing a bonus episode. It's going to come from a live event that I recently did, uh, a, a talk and a Q&A time uh, here in the Twin Cities and a wonderful, fun discussion about how everyone has a God, everyone has a theology, and everyone has a story they believe about reality. And there was a really good Q&A time at the end of that episode. Some people asked some, some really great, great questions that I think um, are good food for your own thoughts and your own musings on this subject. You can also reach out to me at Twitter. I'll leave a 
link to that in the description as well. That's probably the social media site I'm most active on, and I try to answer as many questions that come that way as possible. You can reach out to me other ways too as well. Uh, I love having the dialogue, and I want to hear from you guys. What are you taking away from these episodes? Granted, we're kind of doing a little bit more almost like hardcore church history here on this this series, um, at least these last few episodes, but I think it's so important that we study this stuff so that we can learn what people who have gone before us have to show to us. And we can also even learn perhaps from some of the errors uh, as well. You know, there's a few things that I would have disagreement with Origen about as much as he is a fascinating guy. And it's good to learn from that because there are thoughts that are similar to Origen that pop up. And Maybe there's other people out there that really, really love this, this the sorts of ideas that Origin was teaching, and that you know we can have dialogue and conversation about it instead of angry arguments. I think that's a pro too. <laughs> so, anyways, I I'm so thankful for those of you that have been reaching out with great questions and feedback. I also want to invite you finally to leave a review of this podcast on Apple Podcasts. That would mean the world to me. I'm not fishing for compliments, but what I am fishing for is. I hope that more people will be able to discover this who are looking for this type of really educational podcast and informative podcast and this this podcast about the intersection of theology to all of our meaning-making endeavors. So I want to thank you all. Thanks for listening, and we'll talk again next time.